What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. In this episode, we speak with Evan McMullen, CEO and spoke lead at Linea. Linea is a Web3 backend in a box that helps developers build decentralized applications without knowledge of cryptography or solidity and gives end users control of their data. We cover a lot of big topics in this discussion, such as how the Linea team uses design thinking for building a backend protocol, how they're thinking about business models, their approach for roadmap planning, and much more. In the weeks leading up to the release of this episode, we caught up with Evan to check in on a couple of important changes. The first is that Linea has developed a decentralized data exchange product on top of their protocol. It's a platform that allows individuals and organizations to use the Linea token and buy and sell data without a central authority. Evan also wanted our listeners to know that they've grown an awesome community of developers who continue to give fantastic feedback, both digitally and at their weekly meetup, which is now over 700 members. Thank you so much for joining us, Evan. We're so excited to have you on the show. And... Let's just get things started by getting a little bit of an intro and background on yourself and what your path to crypto is. How did I fall down the rabbit hole? I feel like that's the uh, that's the first line that everybody asks at any crypto event. <laughs> so I guess this is no different. Um, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk to you about decentralization and product and all the fun things that we spend our days thinking about. So um, I first got into crypto... Um, a few years ago, but before then, um, I have you know had a, a long life as a total computer nerd, which I feel like is something that a lot of people um, share in this space. I started um, learning how to program when I was like seven or eight or so, um, and then uh, my parents couldn't get me off the screen after that. Um, and when I was in college, I discovered Students for Free Culture um, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation and developed a, a pretty um, intense personal set of beliefs around the freedom of information and the um, often corruptible roles of central authorities in the streams of information that we rely on to inform our lives, to inform our opinions. And so uh, when I first came across decentralization in a more formalized context um, with the Bitcoin and Ethereum papers first, um, it really piqued my interest as a technical solution for a lot of the more philosophical problems that I had spent um, several years, you know, uh, thinking over and and worrying about. <laughs> um, and so um, my 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 initial forays into the community of decentralization after some some background reading were on Reddit. Um, and on Twitter, uh, as um, most of the, the community tends to communicate in those places. And so, um, you know, practicing the beautiful art of lurking, I spent a lot of time reading about uh, opinions that were similar to and also very different than my own um, in this space. And so um, then I became a nights and weekends warrior on uh, reading white papers in my free time and talking about a lot of these concepts with, with my other friends in the tech community. Um, and it really wasn't until last fall when at the time I was I was working for um, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway Group in product marketing uh, did I find an, or see an opening. Um, a few of my friends at Consensus started to, to pull me in um, thinking about issues of data autonomy um, and your individual personal data and how it expresses itself in the world of Web 2.0 uh, and what sorts of solutions 
decentralization could provide to the challenges of your splintered identity scattered across the Web2 landscape. Uh, and so I started chatting with Consensus and Joe Lubin and all the, the guys over there about um, my ideas in the space and, and then found a wonderful home with the Consensus Mesh on a protocol-based team called Linea. Wow. That is fantastic. Yeah. And I think we can all relate to all of those things that you just said, the weekend warriors and the crypto rabbit hole. Just related to your background, I'm kind of curious. Two, two follow-up questions. So please. one, I'm curious, um, what was your first programming experience and you know what, what gave you the bug? So uh, my first programming experience was with the infinitely patient graduate students working at Microsoft Research in Redmond. So when I was a kid, I used to um, go to Redmond for the summers to visit my family. My uncle is a principal at Microsoft Research and has been for about, I don't know, four million years. <laughs> and um, so in the summer, I would I would go with him, you know, hang out either at the office or, you know, they would be at his house. Um, and the deal with my mother, my very strict lovely Japanese mother was that I could only play computer games if I built them myself. And so uh, my my very first introduction was in Visual Basic, um, where uh, I was introduced to the idea of a number generator. And at one point made a slot machine game that allowed me to click a button and then three numbers would generate. And if those three numbers were the same, that was like the coolest thing ever. And so that is the moment that I caught the bug and realized that if I had a certain set of skills or, um, you know, a certain set of knowledge that I could build an infinite amount of games for myself. And so now instead of random number generators, I'm more on the smart contracts front, but I still think it's pretty cool. That's great. That's great. Games are actually my motivation too. It was my first computing experience. Um, a follow-up on, on, you said pretty early on you developed a strong set of values around uh, the freedom of information. And I'm curious, was there a moment or an experience that pushed you toward an interest in you know, becoming an advocate for that? I think it wasn't really until I was in college that I learned um, about the you know various schools of thought around the role of information in society. I grew up in a really small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio, where there's not a lot of diversity of thought um, around the role of information or anything for that matter. Um, it's a wonderful place to grow up, but not especially intellectually diverse. Um, so I think to to throw it way back, um, I first realized that. Uh, agents of control over what information I had access to could negatively impact my life in an educational setting. Um, I was in fourth grade and I was bored as heck with the work that we were doing. And so I got kicked out of class um, and sat in the hallway for the rest of the year. And my job was to compile a list of books that I wanted to read, read them, and then do some sort of you know projects to prove that I'd read them. And so instead of reading, you know, I don't know, whatever pamphlets or photocopies I initially was given um, in class, I went outside and I read Animal Farm. And I did a puppet show about the Bolshevik Revolution. And I realized, oh my God, you know, you can use pigs to talk about these crazy ideas that no one had ever introduced to me before. And I realized very quickly that, you know, there, there are so many you know, books that I could be reading instead of whatever garbage they were feeding us in class to make us perform well on standardized tests that I became enamored with 
um, you know, sort of elementary texts that made big ideas accessible to me. So, you know, whether it was like putting red capes on sock puppets and talking about communism or, you know, you know, various other things down the line, um, that was, I was, yeah, I was probably like eight or nine years old when it first occurred to me that, you know, authorities had the ability to control what ideas I could get access to. And, you know, with my eight or eight year old attitude problem that did not sit well with me, um, and so then I guess the, you know, obviously a very unsophisticated perspective on the role of central authority and access to information. But as I got older, um, I ran into the wall again in terms of access to academic research. So when I was in high school, I did lab research um, in the ichthyology field. I'm um, studying the behavior of fish uh, because fish are super awesome and so is lab research. And so um, I remember trying to get access to various peer-reviewed articles to confirm um, data that I had, data sets that I had, and to you know expound on the questions and the hypotheses that I was testing. And I found that I was unable to get access to a lot of those documents because they were either behind access or paywalls. Um, and so by the time I got into college, I, uh, I had met um, a few older students who had been a couple years ahead of me at, at Harvard and NYU who told me that they once went into their library with a sheet of stickers with price tags on them and slapped those on the front of all the academic journals. And I thought, what a badass move, right? How cool to elucidate the cost barrier to knowledge um, that is so deeply unethical. And then in a university setting, so I went to Yale for undergrad and we were extremely fortunate in that our wonderful library paid for an obscene amount of information for us to have at our fingertips from journals to books. I mean, they, there's this thing where you can ask them to buy a book and they'll just go and order it and buy it for you and make it available in the library. And it was from that position of great privilege that I realized that access to this universe of information would only be available to me if I had a proxy like the Yale University, University Library to pay for it all or to facilitate the logistics of accessing it. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was around the time that I got into Students for Free Culture, um, around the time that I, I actually met Aaron Schwartz when I was an undergrad who was dating a friend of mine. Um, and, you know, that, that really solidified for me the importance of um, uh, sort of an, an unmitigated access to information, um, especially when that information uh, you know, currently is controlled by a, a biased source. Um, and so I think, you know, to this day, um, transparency, the transparency that blockchain systems provide in terms of what walls exist around what information um, is a, definitely a step in the, in the right direction in that now we are able to build systems where we can see what parameters govern access to certain information as opposed to a complete opacity um, which is what we experience today. That's great. That's great. And probably matches some of our experiences with what's pushed us toward decentralization too. I think we all all have that experience. Uh, so yeah, that's great. And thank you so much for that. Tell us about what you're working on and you know, take us a little bit through the project history. Sure thing. So I work on the Linea Protocol team. We're a spoke at Consensus. Um, we are part of the Consensus Match. So we're one of the um, Ethereum blockchain-based ventures being incubated in this big collaborative environment. Um, and the way that the Linea Protocol team came to be 
actually started off with my uh, spoke lead, our team lead, a man called um, Diego Espinosa. And he comes from a, a family that has a high incidence of type 2 diabetes. And he started to exhibit some traits of, of that disease. And so he participated in a trial experiment um, in, in, I believe it was at the Texas Medical Center, um, wherein a group of these pre-diabetic individuals would um, have regular uh, A1C blood level readings, as well as various other metrics about their lifestyle, both from blood labs and things like weight, waist circumference, diet, exercise, et cetera. And throughout the course of this several months long study, they would not only have access to the um, biomarkers that indicated their pre-diabetic state, but also to coaching that would help them understand the relationship between lifestyle factors and those pre-diabetic indicators. And so it was this very intimate interaction with biometric data um, and understanding its relationship with you know, his day-to-day life that allowed him over the course of this trial to um, curb the, the um, development of this disease in his body. And he's you know, living today without diabetes. Um, and it occurred to him that this was an incredibly dramatic and also artificially produced environment wherein most people don't have the ability to regularly interact with the data that they're expressing and then have an understanding of the relationship between that data and the lives that they lead outside of of the context of managing disease. And so um, he set off uh, to start a project that he called HealthCoin um, that would allow other individuals to have a similar experience of engaging regularly with their biometric data or relevant biological data Um, and then understanding the relationship between that and their lifestyle choices to manage chronic disease. And so it was through the sort of initial development of this health coin idea that, um, that it became clear that there were very few instances in which individuals are able to intimately engage with the data, their digital expression in the world. And, um, just to sort of step it, step it out to a concept that we all can relate to, Right now, your digital expression, the data that you produce as a byproduct of going around your everyday, currently lives in a bunch of splintered little silos that are owned by the titans of Web 2.0. So data about your social communications lives partly in Facebook and Instagram, who's sliding into into your DMs, you know, and Google, um, and as well as Apple, uh, keeping track of, you know, who who you're communicating with. Your medical information is splintered between Quest Diagnostics, individual care providers, the Epic health system or medical record systems that are set up differently in each point of care, um, CVS and your pharmaceutical fulfillment, you name it. Um, and so for every facet of our lives, whether academic, financial, browsing, social, um, each of those facets of our lives is captured and recorded in a different place that we can't access and you know, with, with a set of data that we can't control. And so this disparity between the data that we're producing that's about us, that's created by us as individuals, and where it ends up in these you know, tiny, tiny little towers um, that we don't have access to, that uh, became incredibly clear from the start of this project um, simply in the health field, where it was just the facets of an individual's health that were distributed among a variety of, you know, far, far flung locations. 
And so it was this realization that your digital expression as an individual consumer um, is not accessible to you, that you have no ability to derive value from it or even to interact with it that led way to the Linea protocol. And so the protocol, as a, the, pro, the sort of the vision for the Linea protocol as it exists today is that we want to cater to the community of application level developers, making it easy for them to focus on the kinds of user-facing experiences that they want to deliver, whether it's health management, food delivery, social interaction, like whatever. Um, and they're able to build on a Web3 backend, on a decentralized Ethereum blockchain-based backend that allows them to give their end users the ability to control what third parties can request access to their data, what kind of computation can be performed on their data, um, what kind of terms and conditions individual users would like to apply to the data, to their digital expression. Because right now, all of the control is on the side of the data silos of Web2, and they get to determine the terms by which we can engage with their environments, even though we're the ones providing the value of participation, interaction, and our digital expression. And so as a protocol, we are finding a new spot to sit in the stack, which, you know, because we're, we're still developing all of this, doesn't, doesn't look a whole lot like the Web2 stack, um, and we don't really know what it'll end up looking like, but... We envision our role as sitting between the user-facing application layer and decentralized storage, such that, um, or, or you know, in any any instance of storage, we want to give um, you know our, our developers the ability to choose. We love IPFS and or I love IPFS and decentralized storage solutions like that. You know, from Blue Zelda Swarm, but um, I know you know there are a number of of instances in which we have to compromise for centralization. We can't do it all at once, and so you know Amazon Web Services, Dat, whatever you know, we we are interoperable there, such that the role of the Linear Protocol is extremely simple. We're a traffic cop who's governing the flow of data from individuals producing the data to parties requesting access to that data. And the, the role of the traffic cop is just to abide by the set of agreed upon parameters that control what flows where. So we're standing in the middle of the intersection, making sure that the smart contracts that govern who gets access to what data um, you know, occur in a way that end users have given granted their permission and third parties who have a need for data, um, who want that data to flow into their applications are then able to gain appropriate levels of access to it. So in a simplified sense, it sounds like uh, Linea is serving sort of a, an OAuth function exactly. um, for blockchain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I did have one question. What does Linea mean? So Linea means that we have a really capable marketing team who came up with this in a super cute logo <laughs> that's, that looks something like tree rings and fingerprints. I, I believe that, so the name came out of an exercise where we were talking about um, our longitudinal data. So the data that we produce over time. Um, it's a combination of our lineage and linear data um, that, that is aggregated over our lifetimes. I did want to ask about HealthCoin. So obviously the name HealthCoin has coin in it. So I'll sort of just jump in and ask, is there a token for Linea either currently or planned? That's a great question. So I think, you know, with, with anyone in the crypto space, that's immediately what everyone asks. What's the deal with the token? 
Um, so currently there is not a Linea token. We envision that there will be one as we um, develop our, our broader set of smart contracts. Uh, and the role of a token, um, and you know, I'm happy to talk about this in greater detail once I have it, but um, right now it's sort of a governing principle. The role of the token is to make sure that um, individuals receive confirmation that the terms of their data sharing are agreed upon that are met by a counterparty requesting access to their data. And so in that way, we wanted to have a token, you know, exist in the linear protocol with native crypto economic value. Um, you know, we want a utility token. We're not really interested in having a security token for the sake of raising around, um, even though, you know, who doesn't love Lambos? But um, that has generally been the guiding principle for us since day zero. And I think that's also something very important as the um, as the blockchain space grows and, you know, more and more teams want to enter this environment and build around the principles of decentralization is that the design and purpose of a token should be considered from day zero of development, such that you're not trying to back into a token design to facilitate raising around, which I think happens a dangerous amount of time. Uh, we are also in a pretty privileged position in that our spoke lead, Diego, comes from a financial background. He managed a $15 billion hedge fund, was the number one ranked analyst, and actually is working on another project um, called Frontier Token Research that is taking the equities research model to the crypto space, employing an army of really well-considered and thoughtful analysts to provide um, their perspective uh, in a sort of rigorous, well-researched fashion out to hedge funds. And so um, I feel like we're in pretty good hands when it comes to uh, assessing the role of a token in our ecosystem. I want to turn the conversation a little bit. So it sounds like um, Linea, it's obviously focused on a very small slice of the blockchain stack and what it's going to take to transform the web with this technology. What drove Linea to focus on this specific part of the problem? And you know, what aspect of this problem for developers are you really trying to make easier? So initially, the vision for Linea was, we're going to be all things to all people. We're going to make you breakfast. We're going to have a user-facing app where you can manage your identity. We're going to have you know, secondary applications that will perform, perform relevant computation on your data. And then we're going to do some R&D and figure out blind computation. And we're going to figure out mesh computation that's completely decentralized. And you know, such is the story of any well-intentioned blockchain uh, initiative that then becomes overwhelmed with its potential use cases. And so then we had an, an exercise of pairing back to think about, okay, what are the fundamental problems that we need to solve in order to bring this decentralized ecosystem to life? Because what I just described is more of a summary of the things that we want to exist as consumers and as producers of data and not necessarily a set of problems that will help um, enable the growth of the ecosystem. And so when we took a hard look at our roadmap and all that we wanted to accomplish and also the sort of decentralized ecosystem that we wanted to exist as soon as possible, we realized a couple things. Firstly, that the on-ramp to participating in application and decentralized application level development you know, on the Ethereum blockchain is pretty steep. If you're an app developer and you don't have a clear understanding of solidity, of basic cryptography, of um, data acquisition, you may not 
be interested in developing in this space, even if what you can bring to the table is an application level experience that would be revolutionary. And so instead of turning away app developers or, or making it unduly difficult for them, we wanted to figure out how do we bridge the existing developer community today with the required technology to enable our vision for tomorrow. And so by, um, by lowering the grade of that on-ramp, we needed to do a few things. First of all, we needed Web 3.0 in a repo. The ability for developers to attach onto a Web3 backend and then benefit from you know, all of the um, governance and transparency that smart contracts can offer. Two, we realized that most user-facing applications today assume access to data. And it's that assumption that gives us a landscape that is dotted with individual apps trying to attract users so that those applications can then you know, gain access to data, perform useful computation, et cetera. So instead of each individual application trying to attract a set of active users, clawing them into their, their onboarding process, and then giving you 9,000 passwords that you can never remember, what if an individual were placed at the center of their digital expression, such that they could have a more complete, more comprehensive, and more transparently governed record of the data that they've produced? So in that way, not only would the individual be in control and you wouldn't be ceding your digital identity and digital expression to a centralized authority, but so too could applications have access to more complete and more comprehensive sets of data. So um, in this way, we figured that you know, this, this would be sort of an equilibrium from the two players or that would satisfy multiple players, um, application level developers, secondary applications seeking data, and then the autonomy of the individual. And so, yeah, so I guess, so the two, the two things we wanted to solve for that we saw as real problems that no one was tackling in a substantial way were onboarding to the back end of Web3 and access to data for application level developers. You talked about um, zeroing in on kind of the problem space that you wanted to operate in, looking at the challenges that developers would face. Um, who was involved in that process? And can you tell us a little bit about that process of narrowing down the thing that you were going to work on? Sure thing. So I feel like process is probably a charitable term for what happened there. Um, I think it was a series of messy conversations, hacking, whiteboards, yelling, and uh, groupthink. <laughs> and so, um, you know, th wading through all of our initial biases and individual agendas, we as a you know, small team really pared down to the heart of this problem. And so those participating were, so it was me um, coming at it from uh, a user advocate perspective, um, more on the product side. Um, we had some help from a design thinking colleague of ours who um, comes from more of a traditional product development world, but was trying to, to herd the cats into the creative process from his perspective. Um, we've, uh, we also had a member of our team who's a full stack developer with a long history of experience in places like Amazon and SAP, understanding, you know, what scale, um, implications there might be from decisions that we make early on, um, as well as one of our smart contracts developers who is our decentralization guru and, um, was sort of the, the voice of decentralization to combat, um, ideas about centralized compromise that might be necessary on the road to this future that we all envisioned. And so in that way, we were able to incorporate both the perspective or sort of we were able to incorporate a handful of perspectives that don't necessarily sit at the same table all the time. So user-centered design, 
product focused development, uh, decentralization, and the sort of wealth of knowledge from Web2 that as much as we would like to ignore it, we can't because that's where our expertise comes from. Sure. Sure. No, it sounds like uh, a process that Zach and I have used in the past. You know, it's about bringing the the different stakeholder parties to the table and having that conversation. Uh, in our own experience, we've had some very tense moments in those conversations where, you know, you, you have opposing opinions and ideas about what the product or the direction should be. Are there any particular moments that stick out in those conversations as sort of pivotal or you had to walk something backwards after having some heated discussion and some passionate discussion about the direction that things were headed? Definitely. So I think one particular conversation that stands out was about how we were going to manage in our very first alpha version, how we were going to manage metadata. Did we want to append metadata about a data set to decentralized storage in an encrypted fashion such that we would have to retrieve it, decrypt it, re-encrypt it with another public key, go through this whole you know, challenging process of encryption and decryption, all for the simple task of querying metadata to figure out whether the data you actually wanted would be included in a particular data set. So the way that conversation went was first, no, there's no way that we could possibly do some sort of centralized solution. All of this encryption and decryption process is entirely required. We must do it in a way that is pure as the driven snow to decentralization because any compromise, you know, makes you like a, a web two devil. And it was, it was the, there, there was a moment in the conversation where we realized that our aggressive pursuit of decentralization at all costs was limiting our ability to ship expediently and thus to actually gain knowledge around whether the idea we were putting out in an early alpha version was going to gain any traction anyway. And so that conversation really instilled in me the importance of putting on the brakes um, when it comes to strict adherence to decentralization and recognizing and remembering that there are a lot of things that centralized authorities do really well. Um, and that, you know, we, as much as we would want to wake up tomorrow and, you know, live in a, a perfectly orchestrated decentralized universe, that there's going to be some adoption time, both from a product perspective and from like a societal perspective, any other angle, you name it. And so that conversation, I think about a lot because it reminds me that some compromises, especially with respect to decentralization, are necessary in order to move forward and actually learn about what's important from your end users, which in our case were developers. That's great. And, and maybe a great segue into uh, talking about some assumptions. Zach, I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah. Uh, on that point of you know your users and uh, your markets. So you've talked about your app developers, you've talked about users themselves. Uh, would you actually count both of them as users of your solution? Uh, and if so, can you just jump into how you think about sizing those markets and, and from the perspective of, do we have a big enough market size? Uh, and then we'll probably jump from there into business model. So from that angle as well. Sure. So for for our audiences, we initially started off with considering both application level end users, individuals, and application developers to be 
um, of equal value in our spread of audience. And it was at that point also that we were considering creating an end user application um, for individuals to manage their digital expression. This was before the great paring down of the roadmap where we really got to down to brass tacks and figured out what we wanted to focus on. And it was through the sort of standard user-centered design process of interviews and persona development and um, design thinking that we realized having these two separate sets of end users was going to be really challenging because we were essentially trying to develop two products at once in the same sprints, in the same conversations, and compromising two parallel paths in a single team, in a single agile process is a terrible idea. It's so inefficient. It, it you know, requires compromises left and right, and you don't end up with the kind of product that will really serve either one of your audiences. And so after an extremely painful design sprint, during which there was great carnage on the mural board, I don't know if you guys use that platform, but it's basically like a giant digital uh, whiteboard, we realized that we needed to pick one and focus and then have the other be sort of a guiding North Star in the background that we could check in on and make sure we weren't, you know, screwing them over. And so we ended up with this um, sort of, intense focus on application level developers, um, understanding that, you know, they're the ones we were catering to, but at the end of the day, they are, they too are service providers to their end users. And so we try to take the tack of, um, design that is governed by the needs of application level developers, but informed by the eventual needs of their users. And then in terms of market size, that's a great question. I got nothing like we, I mean, there are lots of developers and I think, I think this is an assumption that happens a lot in the blockchain space, um, especially at the protocol layer. Um, because if we're not responsible for active users in the traditional sense, you know, we're not running ads, we're not, you know, going to make, um, individual active users, one of our, um, key performance indicators, there's, there's a certain level of fudging and assumption that happens where we see that there's a need for this. We recognize that the role of the protocol is essential to enable the kinds of application level experiences that are getting developed all over. And we see that there's an assumption in the market that someone will come in and provide a protocol, layer so, protocol level solution for governing data sharing between users and permission and transparent data sharing between applications. Uh, and so we looked around and realized that no one else is doing that. And so at some point we should probably do a market sizing exercise. In fact, I'm sure that there's someone on my team who's banging his head against the wall saying, Evan, why did you say that? We're going to do that next week. But you know, it, it hasn't been put on my list and thus is not on my radar. Hey, that's totally fair. You're, you're trying to tackle a whole lot of problems at once. And yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to jump on the assumption, um, I do actually want to quickly follow up on that. You touched on having evaluated the landscape and seeing that nobody else had done this or has done this yet. Is that still the case today? Uh, and you know, if you do think about competition, uh, you know, maybe lay that out for us and um, go from there. Sure. So 
from my understanding, which to be fair is limited because I haven't reviewed whatever white papers have been released from last night to 4.15 p.m. on Tuesday, um, which could be a lot. I don't know. Things change really fast here. You guys know. Um, it's almost like New Music Tuesday. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> New Music Tuesday, except for it's 24-7 and it never turns off. Um, so aside from potentially new developments in the last 12 hours, um, the landscape is still pretty... Um, differentiated when it comes to different teams tackling the challenges of application layer access to data and individual autonomy over data. And there are a number of roadmaps at reaching out into the future for various teams and applications that touch on some of these concepts. Um, but I haven't seen any, you know, I haven't seen any repos that would back that up. I think that there are a lot of other fantastic teams in this space that are discussing these problems from angles that are different than ours. So for example, the Ocean Protocol team is thinking a lot about data aggregation um, from you know, third parties around identities, but not necessarily from the perspective of those identities. Um, and so that would be an example of a team where they're tackling very similar pro you know, problems in the space. They're asking very similar questions. But because of the angle from which they're approaching it, we actually see them as partners and potential collaborators. Um, and so it's, it's a really nice time to be in this space because everyone from Enigma to Ocean or even, you know, in our own consensus family, the Uport team that is leading the way with decentralized identity, we see these all as potential collaborators um, to create this sort of ultimate both developer and end user experience of digital identity and autonomy. There's... Definitely in my experience, even in speaking to some of the Uport folks, uh, and there are multiple decentralized identity projects. Uh, interestingly, they all collaborate, and you know they're all sort of taking their own approach. But it does seem to be unique to the blockchain space that there's collaboration, even among those who may consider themselves competitive. Well, a real quick response to that comment: I think that there's something unbelievably unique about the blockchain space in that it is a movement of technology and philosophy that came out of an existing community where, you know, after the financial crisis, you had this community of informed technologists and thinkers and um, dissidents whose aligned incentives led to this movement of decentralization we see today. And so in this way, the vanguard of the technology is governed not by a you know capitalist set of CEOs, but rather by the technologists who you know have spent their whole lives mulling over these problems and building solutions to them. And so, I think a more um, distributed governance of this space has set a tone for how we interact with each other and how we operate that doesn't look like any other industry I've ever been a part of. And I've worked in all kinds of weird corners of the universe from, you know, producing music videos in Hollywood to like dealing with small business insurance in Omaha. And I've never seen anything like this. And the fact that um, principles drive technology in this space um, and seem to be continuing to do so even as it reaches, you know, trillions of dollars of potential and insane amounts of investment, it gives me a lot of hope that perhaps it's baked into the DNA of the technology and the surrounding environment or additional adoption won't be able to change that. Yeah. Something I think about quite a bit uh, in this space, I, I agree with everything that you just said. I, I think that when you have as much investment money as, as 
there is coming into the space. Um, at some point, it feels like there's got to be a shift towards at least thinking about uh, business models, monetization of some sort, um, revenue generation. And so I, I don't think we're there yet, but I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on the way that we approach thinking about business models in the blockchain space? And more specifically, have, have you done any of that with Linea? So with respect to business models in the blockchain space, I'm going to say something that's going to piss you guys, or maybe may piss a lot of people off. I think that end users have gotten way too accustomed to forfeiting their personal data in exchange for services and experiences that are free from a fiat charge. It's the freemium model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The freemium, the freemium model is totally fucked because it assumes entitlement to services of value, which, you know, hasn't, that hasn't existed in our economic system since the beginning of time. (laughs) And so that it's that level of entitlement that, that sort of pigeonholes the variety of business models that are feasible in this current market. I think it'll be really challenging and probably unpopular and maybe an epic failure in the beginning. But I think moving users toward a mindset where they pay, whether in their data, their access, their permissions, fiat, crypto, you name it, for services in exchange for receiving the kinds of experiences or access they want, isn't like that's a, that's a mindset that we're going to need to adopt if we want to pursue business models in the web3 space beyond ad supported content dear god please <laughs> and so um in in recognizing that decentralization allows us to do things that we previously could not that are physically digitally literally impossible today i'm hoping that a new crop of business models will will be born from this ecosystem that allow for individual user agency over freemium model optimization. So what that means, um, you know, at a protocol level, Linea is not trying to build some kind of, you know, $100 million self-sustaining empire that like gets into branded vodka and vacation homes or something like that, right? You know, the, the purpose of Linea is to be a foundational protocol. And ideally, you know, if, if, um, if all goes well, we will work ourselves out of existence. The Linea team will cease to exist. We'll maybe have a couple of people who do updating and maintenance to make sure that you know everything's cool with uh, with whatever you know iterations the Ethereum blockchain takes in the future. But we hope that it will exist as a piece of middleware that disappears in the background, where we can assume access to secure and transparent permissioned access to data, and that's it. Um, in terms of the role of a token in that model and what it looks like in perpetuity, your guess is as good as mine. We haven't sat down to, to hash out those, those kinds of concepts. Um, what I will say, though, is that I'm hoping that application-level uh, experiences, so user, user-facing applications, will look beyond the you know selling data in exchange for fiat or for crypto or value or whatever, will look beyond the ad supported experience to really figure out, you know, how, how can this crazy machine of decentralization power different approaches to creating value and exchanging value? Um, I think that some, such as the, the basic attention coin um, being used in, I think it's the Brave browser, um, are starting to do that, recognizing that 
the forms of value that end users create for Web2 organizations today, such as attention or interaction in their digital space, actually do have value and allow the end users to derive value from that action. Um, So I think in the space of decentralization, business models will start to assign value to previously um, sort of invisible or um, unrealizable forms of value. That's a word. Um, Things like attention and participation and data sharing. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the fact that, you know, the basic attention token is actually naming attention as a commodity. Uh, I I think you're a hundred percent on, on the money that, you know, people are, if, if you don't know what the product is, you are the product. Like, um, I think there's one thing about the crypto landscape, which is it really is bringing those things to the fore and at minimum today, making allowing people to think a little bit more about how they are being commoditized. One thing I'd like to touch on before we jump into user experience and how it relates to Linea and blockchain. Um, anybody working in this space, thinking about this space, having conversations about blockchain or crypto, we're all operating on a lot of assumptions. Right. It's, it's inevitable with any new technology or any new idea. Um, I'm curious, how is the team thinking about, how's the Linea team thinking about validating assumptions? Are you doing anything in a, in a more formalized way to sort of test and measure as you go? So I agree completely that this enti- the entire blockchain space right now is a glorious thought experiment, minus like CryptoKitties. Like, that's our point of validation, right? That is the biggest, most beautiful, elaborate, Steph Curry-branded point of validation that we have access to. And so the, the, the landscape is built on an insane amount of assumptions that, um, that there are a variety of informal and formal ways of testing, I think many of which we haven't really figured out yet. And the reason that I mention that is that the same is very much true of the Linea team. So we try to we try to name and be cognizant of as many of these assumptions as possible. But part of the challenge is that you've got to build and ship something pretty tangible and pretty substantial such that you can collect formal responses. And so we're currently in the process of developing our alpha protocol. Um, we're imagining that, you know, by this summer, we'll be hosting hackathons to invite all of our friends to come and break all the things. Um, and it's that point of reckoning that I imagine will be the most substantive in terms of providing feedback on the assumptions that we've made about the role that this protocol can play in the stack, the problems that it can solve for our developers, et cetera. Um, now, in terms of more uh, traditional means of assumption validation, just in conversation in a non-technical sense, um, we do have a crew of app devs who we talk to on a regular basis. Um, Full disclosure, this crew of app devs are just a bunch of my buddies um, who I have regular conversations with about the challenges that they're facing, both in their current roles, you know, their their nine to fives, as well as their weekend warrior positions developing decentralized applications for the blockchain. Um, One of our uh, community managing team members um, is also super experienced in building dev communities. He's actually just launching a DAP school um, and is a leader in the open-minded 
decentralized machine learning community as well. Um, and so in that way, we're able to tap into a few other communities when it comes to asking bigger questions as opposed to direct response to, hey, we've developed this particular smart contract or this particular, you know, set of set of assumptions. Can you help us battle test those? Those are more sort of for the one-on-one conversations. Um, and so in that way, we're starting to develop our OKRs, our objectives and key results not necessarily based on like true objectivity, you know, is, is a given task accomplishing X goal in the blockchain space, but rather, you know, are we building smart contracts? Are we building versions, documentation? They're satisfying the needs that have been articulated to us by these developers. And so I think until we have a tangible product that we can battle test in a hackathon situation, our metrics for success are really based on our ability to satisfy the articulated challenges that developers have shared with us. We've talked a lot in this conversation so far about uh, kind of bringing user-centered design processes into the conversation. And I know when you were hashing out which direction you wanted to go with Linea, it sounds like that was a part of the conversation. Um, My background is in UX. Um, Zach and I have spent a lot of time working together as a PM and UX team, um, working through various processes. I'm curious to hear... What's been most valuable for Linea in terms of uh, decision making or testing testing ideas in terms of uh, the user centered design process? And maybe a follow on to that: Do you also do you have design staff, and are you working actively with them through these problems? So the Linea team does not have full time design staff. Um, design at Consensus is a separate group um, who we get to borrow resources from and time and friends from. And so between that, um, a few of my friends uh, who work in design, who are in the decentralization space and are willing to pinch hit um, a few hours on weekends to help me out. And then um, some of my rudimentary design thinking practice from previous roles, uh, we're sort of you know, mixing it all together to, to figure out something that looks like a design process. Sure. <laughs> now, I'm sure that, you know, I've when I send this these when I send this podcast over to Carson and Amy, they're going to tear out their hair and say like you have not described anything that is a user user centered design process. But we have found a handful of components of the more traditional user centered design process to be incredibly valuable for our product development. I think the two most pivotal for us um, are super simple. Um, I think the two most pivotal elements of the user-centered design process that we've borrowed to inform our product are user personas and user stories. And I know they, you know, they take many different forms and many different practices and many different roles as well. But for us, having a picture of a person who we used my friend Eli, and actually a lot of the information about him is relevant to him as a person, but having a picture to point at and say, is Eli going to respond well to this feature? Or does this really get at Eli's data access problem? Um, Just from a very simple conversational level allows us to have a ready gut check to determine whether a decision we're making is going to ultimately serve his needs or not, or the needs of this user or not. So to build those personas, um, you know, it was pretty standard combining both um, individual interviews and um, data from that we'd, uh, or insights we had extrapolated from larger data sets. So um, using Gartner, um, using Global Web Index, using um, a handful of, you know, your other sort of giant spreadsheet data sets describing, you know, XYZ demographic. And so by combining those insights with interviews, we're able to have a pretty representative set of um, opinions and needs and perspectives that we could then go and, and um, 
sort of double check with our, our little board of friends um, who are developers who can confirm, you know, for us that these are actually, these are actually relevant and true. And um, those conversations also really helped us prioritize aspects of the consumer persona such that we weren't outsized, we weren't providing outsized attention to any particular facet of the, of that personality or that identity that wouldn't be relevant to our product. So it sounds like in in terms of personas, I mean, that, that sounds like a, a a pretty uh, tried and true approach that many startups, even outside of the blockchain space, take. You know, you, you have a proto persona, you have a small advisory board, you supplement that with secondary research, and you come up with a hypothesis, which you can then go measure against your audience. Um, do you have multiple personas that you've you've put together, or are you working against a single persona? Um, so currently, we're working against a single persona. We started off with a few, um, and then realized in in our product pairing process that um those were not that having the the diversity of personas was too broad um and so now we have this one like macro persona that occasionally we'll add information to um and you know add a little a little additional facet to but not really too much of a departure from i imagine that as we proceed with our technical roadmap and get down to a beta version where we're actually testing with partners that that will incorporate a handful of other personas as well as the diversity of stakeholders and users will certainly be more diverse than this initial alpha version you, you mentioned a second tool which is user stories and i wasn't sure are, are you referring to user stories in like the agile sense or like user scenarios yes yeah in the agile sense so we um okay. do we uh, prescribed or ascribed to the agile process. We do two week sprints and our backlog is informed by the output of this design process, wherein we, um, created a fake paradigm, fake environment where our user persona was participating in a hackathon. And we wanted to provide a very basic level MVP protocol set of documentation and smart contracts that would allow for that persona to successfully participate in a hackathon and build um, an application level experience that um, they were they were trying to, to create in this context. And because you know everyone on the team loves hackathons, has participated in them a lot, we all had our own perspectives on what might be required for that kind of environment. Um, and we chose a hackathon because the this initial alpha version that we're creating is intended to be the code equivalent of a back of a napkin sketch. It's a proof of concept, and it's certainly not supposed to uh, live up to all of the requirements to launch something, let's say, on mainnet. And so um, by breaking down the experience of our persona, leveraging this technology in a hackathon scenario, we parsed it into individual user stories, such as, um, you know, the... um, the application is able to access user data. What does that mean? You know, you break that down to an, a million different steps in terms of what the end, the user is experiencing, the developer in this case. And then we sort of broke down those micro user stories a step further by describing then what the technical requirements would be to satisfy the user being able to achieve that objective. And so the way that our cards are organized in, um, we use Jira as um, a management tool um, in terms of software, but the way that our cards are organized for our agile process in Jira uh, is per those user stories. So a card will have um, a set of micro tasks associated with it um, that all add up to enabling our persona to accomplish a particular aspect of their objective. Great. Yeah, that's definitely matches i think my experience with uh 
a, a good use of user stories. I, I really love the framing of the hackathon scenario because I think that's such a, a good way to sort of frame what should and shouldn't be worked on at any given moment. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, standing up, you know, the bare minimum, which leads me to think a little bit about prototyping. And in in the Linea world, is there a notion of a prototype that you might do, like a lightweight prototype that you might show to somebody prior to developing anything, or is this just, uh, you know, live code and, and that really is your prototype? So, in terms of prototyping, um, we are very big on paper prototypes. Um, which roughly translate more to whiteboards and sketches. Uh, but our sort of affirmation process of what we're planning to build is super quick and dirty. Um, in my previous roles, I've worked in product design to the point where our prototypes could include everything from um, a car that doesn't have an engine in it, fully equipped with all of the internal designed elements to um, a a, an immersive um, VR rendering of a uh, product um, and the the interior of a product space um, where you could you know put on a hololens or or um, uh, what's it called um, oh no we were yeah we were using hololens and Vive to um, to maneuver around the space and so by no means are we putting that amount of effort into prototyping anything um, it's more just a uh, prototyping, I think, right now is more of an exercise in terms of can we clearly express it with brevity and clarity? Um, that's redundant. Can we express an idea with brevity and clarity before we start building? That seems to be more of the role of a paper prototype than actually confirming the validity of the idea with an outside audience. And I think part of that is just it's a race. It's about expediency. Can you know We have to build really fast and we don't have time to check, you know, everything against our, our field of potential audience members. Um, at the same time, the amount of, um, effort required and to sort of invest in, um, building various facets of the protocol, uh, is so much lower than, um, than might be required for other types of products that building quick and then taking a step back isn't super inefficient for us. It, it works as a process um, and we're able to get much better feedback once we've introduced something um, that's a bit more complete, you know, a, a completed smart contract to the community or whatever um, than we might with a prototype. Sure. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one more UX question, and I think we're going to talk about some team dynamics. So uh, I have talked to several people in the space working specifically on the UX side of blockchain. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on uh, challenges that you see that are uh, unique to blockchain or unique to Linea from a UX perspective. Are there things that come to mind? So one actually we were just talking about earlier today with my team um, is the the question of how much prior knowledge do you assume of your audience? How much elementary documentation and onboarding handholding do you need to provide in addition to your repos um, and the sort of the, the bulk of the content there in terms of documentation and smart contracts. So we got into a bit of a heated discussion earlier um, where, you know, some of our team members said, you know what? No, like it's not our job to describe decentralized storage and, you know, walk people through the process of calling hashed sets of data from IPFS. Like they should know that already. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's also the other side of, of the coin where we don't want to assume, 
you know, too much knowledge on the part of our audience such that we become prohibitive to use and that, you know, additional documentation is required to even get at our documentation. And there isn't really a clear or clean answer there. It's a question of effort and availability. Um, And I think this is a challenge that you see kind of across the board with any um, user facing tools from, you know, from Uport to MetaMask to like, you name it. It's, it's a delicate balance between providing sufficient support for um, developers to engage with your offering uh, and doing too much work and wasting your team's bandwidth and energy. Um, there's also a question of, you know, if you're providing introductory documentation in terms of how to leverage other aspects of the blockchain ecosystem, other tools or protocols or whatever, that the whatever uh, documentation or guidance you're providing might be inferior to something else that exists out there in the space. And so um, issues of redundancy, of level of fidelity of information are certainly plaguing the edges of what we're building right now in terms of user experience. And, and we see um, you know, good UX for a protocol to be plug and play. Is a developer you know, within a certain range of aptitude able to leverage what we've shared and easily integrate the protocol into the application that they're they're trying to bring to life. And and when you say the the range of aptitude, have you done any uh, thinking or had conversations about how to quantify that range? Oh man, I we we've had a lot of I've had conversations with my friends a lot about this. Nothing official. And part of the challenge, and this is I mean this is true of the software space in general, decentralized blockchain, traditional or not, sure, is that. There are, there are certain metrics that we use to discern aptitude in other fields that just don't apply here. Whether it's degrees, whether it's grades, whether it's accomplishments, like so much of the cowboy nature of decentralization is that, you know, your, your pieces of paper are no good here. It's, right. you know, the, the, right. your ability to ship and the quality of your ideas. And so um, figuring out how to correlate this like unquantified set of new skill sets with whatever, you know, supporting material would be appropriate to, to help them integrate with your product. That is, it's a weird and messy, um, decision to have to make, uh, where, where I've fallen out on it. And, and the conclusion of my most recent conversation is, well, let's just look at what everyone else is doing and try to approximate from there. Um, so, we'll see how that works out. I like to lean on the side of um, as much documentation as possible, as simple as possible, um, as clearly communicated as possible. Uh, I think that especially in terms of um, documentation, it's often true that the creators are assuming much more knowledge and clarity of communication than their audience is experiencing. And so um, I am, am pushing really hard for um, as many forms of clarifying documentation as possible. Um, I think we also have you know, a great privilege at this kind of time in history to provide redundant sets of information to introduce you know, the use of a protocol um, in a variety of forms, whether it's video, whether it's infographics, whether it's written text, commented code. I think that having 
as many different approaches to explaining these ideas as possible um, will allow us to connect with as many people as possible. And, um, you know, that certainly will make some members of my team cringe in terms of the amount of overhead and effort required to do that. But I think for some aspects of our work, it will pay off in spades. And, and do you have a role in, in Linea that's dedicated to maintaining documentation? Not really. Um, okay. So that's something actually that we were that we were talking about earlier today. Is um, so we're going to be welcoming I think six team members um, to Linea within the next few weeks, and so carving out um, additional bandwidth to work on documentation to focus on communication will be a huge part of that. Um, I'm really excited because a few of our team members are not only incredible community leaders within the decentralization space, but also very adept developers. And so I think their um, sort of dual skill sets in communicating with the with you know our our peers and with the ecosystem, as well as being able to pull cards and contribute on a technical level, will provide us with um, you know further further clarity around not only how much information to share, but also what form. Yeah, that's great. I I, I found that on on various projects that the help training material the the content piece is such a critical piece of the puzzle that that last mile that can really help people adopt the ux and and really have a great experience with the product um and it's interesting that that you're approaching it from a subject matter expert point of view versus trying to add that on top i think that's a much more sane approach to to lasting documentation yeah i I think when you think about uh, most people think about their product as the software itself and sort of leave documentation to dangle on the side. And really documentation is part of your product. It's part of the user experience. And it is so um, undervalued, I think. I agree completely. I think that, well, and I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, like once, you know, once you spat it out of your mouth that like the value of your product can only be realized if people use it. And the way to get people to use it is documentation. And I think um, Truffle has done an exemplary job of uh, user-friendliness and onboarding and um, sort of wrapping their product in a straightforward onboarding experience. And so we're hoping to replicate something with uh, comparable ease. Sounds like we may need to get the Truffle folks on here. (laughs) I know a guy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we've... I've heard nothing but wonderful things about Truffle. Um, so I, I do want to quickly touch on team dynamics. So you you just mentioned you're adding six new people. You talked a little bit about your team size before, but uh, assuming we're a couple weeks from now and you've added those new folks, can you just break down the the entire team in terms of roles and responsibilities and a little bit about you know, how you manage the team in terms of team process. Sure thing. So um, when we when we bring everyone on board, we will have um, a couple full stack or so in terms of previous experience, a couple full stack developers, a couple dedicates dedicated smart contracts developers, um, a couple guys who I mentioned who will both be contributing on the tech side as well as the community management side. And the two um, facets of community as I see it are one, um, in terms of broader strategy. So what kinds of documentation do we need? What sorts of engagement do we want to bring to life? What is our roadmap for bringing that engagement to bear? 
And then on the other hand, it's on the ground. It's the, it's the community building at meetups. It's hosting hackathons. It's actively participating in a digital communities, um, the digital communities where we participate individually, but with a linear voice. So whether that's Reddit, Hacker Noon on Medium, um, entities like this podcast, uh, and then in addition to that, um, we've also got uh, our product lead, Diego, um, and then me on the uh, the odds and ends and product and operations and whatever else needs to happen side of things. Um, and then beyond that, I think we will add a dedicated design resource probably in a few months. Um, I also think that depending on the rate with which we are able to expedite our backlog, we may need another smart contracts developer too. So if you know any, please send them my way. Um, so I think um, the what this Motley crew will add up to is a primary focus on technical development informed by a constant conversation with our community. And we've been really fortunate to already have a lot of activity and engagement, not only um, IRL in meetups, but also um, online with our GitHub. Um, and so I'm hoping that by being an sort of active members of the community and facilitating this conversation, that we will be able to, um, to have regular feedback, um, not just from a sort of hackathon instance or, or isolated event, um, but rather an ongoing conversation where we engage the developer community to really understand, you know, what do they need? What's working? What's not? Um, and because at the end of the day, we're not building a company to IPO or something like that. The only reason this team has come together is to act in service of the developer community and expand the set of possibilities for what they can bring to life. And as long as we remember that, as long as that is what our drives, what drives our process, I think we will be able to accomplish our objectives just fine. That's great. And, you know, you started to get into, you know, project success. You know, I think sounds like the business model and, and all of that is in evolution. And, and ultimately, you're most keen on ensuring that this project is sustainable, whether it's financially sustainable as a project in and of itself or sustainable and sustained by the community. Um, but beyond that, you know, I'm curious to hear a little bit about uh, who you view as your stakeholders and setting expectations and communicating with them, uh, including but not limited to, you know, obviously the community that you just described, the, the sort of developer community. Sure. So when we think about our secondary stakeholders or the parties that will be significantly impacted by the adoption of this protocol, um, I mean, one on the one hand, like everybody as a private individual, um, but to narrow that, any individual who has an interest in or stake in the data that they produce. So in that way, it could be professional athletes who want to monetize the biometric data that they're producing on the field and sell it for gambling or fantasy. On the other hand, it could be individuals who are managing chronic diseases who want to have a clear understanding of the biometric data their body is producing so that they can respond with lifestyle and diet changes to keep their disease um, you know, under control and to be able to actively manage it with transparency. Um, and there are you know, a million, million other instances there. Um, but then on the other side of the individuals um, who are pushing the data, the pull side 
of enterprises or applications who want to perform computation on this data to derive useful insight either for themselves as third parties or to feed back to those individuals who provided the data in the first place. And so I see this ecosystem of secondary computation as including enterprises from, gosh, um, you know, everyone from product development at Nike to um, actuaries who are working at United Health Group, um, you know, better trying to understand population dynamics um, from, you know, from the medical space, the ability to access population health data at scale and then perform computation on it to identify trends or correlations would be unprecedented. Um, and so when we think about these secondary stakeholders or individuals who will be impacted by the scale and, and utility of the linear protocol, um, we try to consider what would allow those parties not only to accomplish their objectives, but to do so in a way that aligns with the principles of decentralization. So transparency, accountability, consistency, um, because, you know, if, if your single objective is to just, you know, feed a third party data for computation, you don't necessarily need all of that. The data doesn't have to be transferred securely. It doesn't have to necessarily be verified. It doesn't have to have provenance or um, some quantified metric of quality. Um, but rather, uh, you know, we want to make sure that all of the incentives are aligned across the, the landscape of stakeholders from individuals pushing data to those computing on it. And so um, one of the ways that we govern this process or that, that we integrate those values is what we call um, a, an information integrity score, call it IRIS for short. It's basically an algorithm that quantifies the value, the relative value of a data set. And so the elements of that value include things like completeness, um, uh, time during which the data set was, was collected. So is it you know five seconds of data or five years? Um, the provenance of the data, is it coming from a trustworthy source that can be verified? Um, as well as, you know, basic things like hashing, where we can have transparency in terms of if that data set's been tampered with. There are a few others as well. And so I guess this is a very long answer to your short question about secondary um, audiences, which is um, there are, we are not developing in a vacuum for a single audience. Um, our objective is to slot in and, and fill a need in an ecosystem that considers all of its actors and that is able to satisfy as many of their needs as possible um, with as simple of a solution as possible. And so when we think about who our users really are for this protocol, of course, in terms of adoption and getting it out there and making sure it scales, they're developers. But at the end of the day, we are all stakeholders in this community because we have an active role in terms of being a citizen in that community, being a part of that community. And so I think in the blockchain space, there is this increasingly important mindset where you're not just developing for your primary end users, you are developing as contributors to an ecosystem. That's great. Uh, so I do know we're running a little bit close on time and I want to make sure that we hit on uh, one of the most important product management uh, things, which is a roadmap. And so one, what is your roadmap? And two, would love to hear a little bit about how you go about generating your roadmap uh, to the extent that you have something formalized, which you may not. So a roadmap, alpha, beta, mainnet, world domination. But <laughs> in terms of 
additional granularity there. No, seriously. Um, we have a loose technical roadmap um, that identifies basic milestones um, for uh, an alpha, a beta, and then what we're calling version 2.0 or what'll eventually go on mainnet. Um, we have a loose set of dates to wrap that around. So um, our alpha will be um, releasing and, and testing um, probably in the next month or so, our beta around the fall, and then um, we're shooting for mainnet in the spring, probably around April or so. And then that's basically all we have in terms of granularity for those further off objectives, um, because you know we can't define what we don't yet know. And so in terms of our immediate roadmap for version 1.0, that is very much governed by our design sprint. And it comes back to the user stories that we are developing for our persona. Um, we want to make sure that our alpha version is able to satisfy the objectives of that persona in the context of a hackathon. And so by identifying the, the cards that were, that are required to bring that to life, that then backs into a series of technical objectives that form our alpha technical roadmap. So, um, we, We'll probably engage in a similar design sprint, um, probably with a, a few more personas when we approach the beta version. Um, so I would say within the next month or so, and then we'll have a much more um, fully fleshed out and and a slightly longer um, technical roadmap for that next segment of the journey. Uh, and you know, as we're ramping up, figuring out how to work together as a team, figuring out what aspects of the process work and don't work, and, you know, running into some technical inevitabilities and challenges in this space, I think that incremental fidelity is the only way to go that's going to work for us, where we can have, you know, our sort of vague roadmap off in the future, but because we don't know what's going to work, we also don't know what new technologies are going to show up on the scene to, to help us um, make changes or, you know, require us to, to adopt new approaches. Um, it's that, yeah, incremental detail that I think is going to carry us through. Um, and that's something that um, was really frustrating to me at first because, you know, I'm used to operating in, a, in an environment where we, we know most of what is possible to know. And we're not expecting massive curveballs, but the decentralization space is just like what, you know, like life on the blockchain is what happens between curveballs. And so it's imprudent to try to plan out too far. Absolutely. Are you able to share something personal about yourself that may surprise people listening to this podcast? So for being as much of an indoor kid obsessed with computers as I was, uh, at one point I was also the North American modern pentathlon champion competing in fencing, pistols, show jumping, swimming, and running. That is amazing. <laughs> thank you. I am very proud of that. <laughs> that is that fantastic. Is cool. Evan, thank you so much. This has been super insightful, a great conversation. It's been fantastic. And, you know, maybe at some point down the road we could hop on and do another one of these once you're further along and we have answers to some of these questions. So guys, thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun and I can't wait for it to continue. 